This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Before we dive in to this episode, I have to tell you what is up on Patreon because I have made so many changes. I put so much into it this summer and there's so much to be had over on Patreon. So first off, you can become a member for just $5 a month or we also have a pay what you can option at $1 a month because you know, stuff is crazy out there, you guys. I get it. And here's what you get when you sign up on Patreon. One bonus episode every month, an extra episode of a book that is only for Patreon subscribers. We have also started running ads on this podcast. I held out for a long time, but finally I caved. And now that we have ads, if you don't want ads anymore, all the episodes on Patreon will go to your podcast feed without ads if you just sign up for Patreon. So all episodes from here going forward, ad free. We also have access to something called a lounge. They gave us early exclusive access. It's been awesome. So basically become a member of the Patreon. We have a cookies only chat where all cookies can talk to each other. It's like a real digital book club where you can talk about books, the episodes. We talked about the Barbie movie, like so much conversation is going on there. That is where all my focus is going as well. That is where all the conversation is happening. You also get, oh my God, there's more. You also get an email of photos that go with the episode and you get emailed that every time an episode comes up. So everything we talked about in the episode, a photo of it will be sent to you as well as the reading list for the month if you want to read along. If you love this podcast, if you want to support this podcast, join the Patreon. It's so much fun. There's so much fun to be had over there. And also we are fully independent. We run fully by your Patreon support. So consider supporting us over there for just $5 a month um, and a pay what you can option at $1. And it's linked in the show notes. It is www.patreon.com slash Chelsea Devantes. If you just want to type it in, uh, it takes two seconds. We send you a podcast feed. You get all of the bonus ad-free stuff. So easy. And um, I'll see you over there in the lounge if you join the Patreon. Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This week, we're book clubbing Open Book by Jessica Simpson. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of badass celebrity women who have been torn down by tabloids and dissected by social media, all while facing career obstacles, broken relationships, and incredible triumphs. I am your host, Chelsea Devantes. I am a TV writer, film director, and comedian. So celebrity memoirs have always been my favorite book genre. They're both wildly fun and entertaining. And in my opinion, one of the most powerful things a woman can do is tell her own story. And these memoirs inspire me to feel less alone, more emboldened, and ready to say fuck off if the occasion arises. And I welcome the occasion always now. Um, my guest this week, is so special. Y'all, it is a best friend episode. My guest is Ashley Nicole Black. (laughs) Hello. Um, Hi. 
Uh, Ashley has many impressive credits. First, most notably, she's my best friend. She was also a writer and correspondent on Full Frontal with Sam B. She's a writer and star of a Black Lady sketch show on HBO. And she has a damn Emmy. So multiple Emmy-nominated, Emmy-winning lady. Um, and she has a movie in the works, you guys, which is very exciting. Um, and the most important credit that, besides being a best friend, is that... She once co-hosted a different podcast with me, <laughs> a six-episode podcast with yours truly about harassment in the workforce called Noisemakers. So, you know, check that out. Um, and Ashley, okay, so I introduce all my guests with the story of how we met for the first time. And ours... Well, and we disagree about this story. Yeah, we, <laughs> we have a particularly <laughs> weird first-time meeting story. Okay, so do you want to tell your side first of how we met? Okay, so we met at the Second City, which is like famed Chicago comedy institution. I was a grad student at the time. I was studying for my PhD. So imagine a little troll person who's being beat down by knowledge every day. <laughs> and on weekends, I would go to the Second City to do comedy and like have something fun in my life. But just um, barely dragging my little body into the theater. <laughs> and I meet this like shining angel of a woman who just like pulls me into the bathroom and is like, this isn't going to work and puts makeup on me and kind of like gets me together and then pushes me back out to go to class. And like, I had no idea that I, in retrospect, this was dumb, but I thought like, oh, I'm going to do comedy. The one part of entertainment where it doesn't matter what you look like. And I guess I'd forgotten that I was a woman and uh, you do have to look good to do comedy as a woman. And I learned that from Chelsea. And we became <laughs> best friends. Which is like a terrible lesson. I want to say you can look like shit to do comedy, but in the but year, it's in the, it's very harder, uh, but the <laughs> year, uh, the, it's not even like looking like shit. It's like, they want to know that you've tried. Like, did you yeah. try? Um, and that's important to them. Also the year Ashley and I met was 2009 and we were forced to wear high heels and dresses on stage. So yeah. it really was required at that time. This is how I remember the story, okay? We were on break from level one, day one of our Second City Comedy class where Ashley and I met. We were in the bathroom and she goes, hey, does my makeup look okay? And I said, no, it doesn't. Let me help you. <laughs> and, then I, and then I put makeup all over her face. I will say that it objectively didn't. Like I was going through a rough patch. It wasn't rude. <laughs> Um, okay, so when I started this podcast, I texted Ashley and I was like, look, you're my bestie. You get first pick. Here's a list of 40 books I'm considering doing for the first season. You can choose any one you want to pick. And within one second, you texted back Jessica Simpson. Yes. And I have to say, I have quoted this book in meetings and in the writer's room so many times. And every time I'm like, so Jessica Simpson wrote her book and there's always a long pause after like, where they're like, what? <laughs> what could possibly be relevant? <laughs> um, I mean, what made you want to pick her over all the others? Um, well, I had read this book, so that was part of it. Um, but That's fair. I, I'm not a huge memoir person. I know you love them. And I read this one and another one, like, just because you said they were so great, but it's not my genre. And this, to me, is, like, one of the best memoirs I've ever read. And I didn't go into it with that expectation and shame on me for that. Um, I really loved it. I think it's a really good book. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I feel like, um, I don't know what your Jessica Simpson impressions were before this, but mine were like, I just remember being, I think in a Walmart and I was like, who's this knockoff Britney Spears? And I, I assumed I was like, well, Christina Aguilera was like, 
edgy and dark. And Britney Spears is like cute and sweet. And so I guess they picked religion for this one because they like ran out of things. And uh, she was always just this like side woman who, who I, when I read the book, I was like, oh, she's affected my life intensely. And I had no idea. Uh, what was your impression of her before? Reading? Yeah, I think similarly, I remember like, Britney was the huge star that was on everything. And Christina was like the one who could sing. Mm -hmm. And Jessica Simpson was just kind of like the third one. And I think my impression of all three of them was like, man, life must be so easy. You're a skinny blonde. You kind of sing. And the world is your oyster. (laughs) (laughs) And so as like a performer who wasn't any of those things, I was like, this is what's wrong with entertainment, that they want that. And I only thought that because I didn't look any further into these women who are, of course, like, working so hard in a system that's also hard for them. But I just didn't think any harder about it until I got older and then also read this book. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I mean, like, I've been, you know, we were we grew up in an era where these women were, yeah, they were everywhere. They really influenced our culture. Um, and, like, I, this book to me heals our old 90s wounds, ones we had, ones we didn't know we had. Um, Yeah, it shows the massive amounts of trauma we put women through, and it dishes every fucking detail under the sun. I was screaming as I read it. It was the first book I recapped on Instagram, which is, like, how this whole thing started. And, Ashley, I don't know if you remember this, but I was recapping this on our girls' vacation. Um, So, okay, let's get into the book. The book, first off, has a ghostwriter, Kevin Carr O'Leary. Here's what's something weird about this guy. He also ghost wrote Gabrielle Union's book. Which is also very good. Which is another one of my top fives. It's called We're Gonna Need More Wine. It is so good. I highly recommend it. Gabrielle Union will be on this podcast. Just hot plug. Um, Not her herself. Maybe if she she hears my call, but uh, we'll be talking (laughs) about her book. Um, He also co-wrote Vivica Fox, Chrissy Metz. And here's the thing. Gabrielle and Jessica's books are incredible. However... Why is this man writing so many women's trauma memoirs? Like, why is this his niche? And so, like, yes, he did a good job in these two books. I haven't read the others yet. But why? I will say ghostwriters for these women's books are predominantly male. And it bothers me where it's like there can be men who are good at it. But, like, there's a ton of women writers out there. Like, why can't they ghostwrite these books? Where are they? It's like, why, why, are, why are gynecologists mostly men? Like, it's not even half. I think because doctors are mostly men. I think, like, when you get a ghostwriter, the publisher just says, like, here's a ghostwriter we've worked with before. You know what I mean? So it's going to be... A dude. I mean, I get it. And I think, like, it's shifting. You know, Mel B used a woman. Mariah Carey has a woman. But it's still... It's something that bothers me. So every time I see a dude who's about to, like, tell us the experience of this woman's life... I guess I'm biased. I guess I'm, (laughs) is this what reverse sexism is? Um, Just kidding. It's not a thing. Don't take that to heart. Okay. Um, All right. So let's get into the recap. So the book starts off so real, so raw. On page one, it's Halloween 2017, and she writes this. It was 7.30 in the morning, and I'd already had a drink. I always had a glitter cup in Reach at Home. That's what I called the shiny tumblers filled with vodka and flavored Perrier. At that time, the flavor was mostly strawberry, but by then, I didn't care what it tasted like. I just needed a drink every morning because I had the shakes. So heartbreaking. Um, And she immediately lays out all her trauma. Sexual childhood abuse, relationships with men. She doesn't say she has an abusive relationship with her dad, but to me, that was very clear in the book. What about you? 
It's between the lines. I actually, I'm sure we'll get into this later. She, to me, found the perfect balance between being respectful of her father, his story being his, but also just telling her story. And I feel like there are some things you have to read between the lines in that relationship, but I thought she did it in a very respectful way. You know what? That's a great point. I think I was coming at it as like, does she not know? Does she not know this man's abusive? Does she not know her mom's abusive? Like, and, but the way you're saying it makes a lot more sense. So let's go with that one. Cause I, I was sort of like, oh, I hope she realizes like they did this to her. So the frame for this book is sort of like an intervention she's doing with herself to talk about her alcoholism and her pill addiction and how she got here and how she's moving towards getting sober. She starts singing at her church because she believes it's God's will for her to sing. And she's like, oh, my God, I have a message from God. I'm supposed to sing. By the way, what a great message from God. Yeah. Well, I will say (laughs) I identify with Jessica a lot because I grew up in also a very Christian household. And I think we are similar denomination of Christian. Which is? Um, Well, I'm Church of God in Christ, which is the black version. And I think they're either like apostolic or Baptist, which is like the same beliefs, but white people it, it literally like <laughs> it's so sad that in america it's like no no we believe the same things just the black people go to church over there the white people go to church over there. yeah that's yes that's very, <laughs> that's very funny i heard I, I think yeah i feel that god's message is often for you to do what it is you want to do that, god, god just wants you to do what you want to do <laughs> <laughs> that's what i've experienced did as you, a christian did god ever give you a message for what you were going to do ashley Yeah, he hasn't given me a message personally, but many people have come to me to tell me that God has a message. That's really nice of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so yes, religion is a huge part of Jessica's upbringing. I think it explains so much about her in retrospect, Um, including like when she starts developing boobs, her mom's like just putting her in like 19 vests and everyone's like, this child is too sexual looking and she's like walking around in a garbage bag and she learns a lot about how her body's not good and how other people control it. Um, And then uh, she starts singing and she auditions for Mickey Mouse Club. So for anyone who doesn't remember, in the early 90s, there was this one season of the Mickey Mouse Club where every kid in the group went on to become like mega famous. So in that season was Justin Timberlake, Ryan Gosling, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, and Jessica Simpson auditioned for this group and didn't make it. She like totally bombs the audition. Um, All week long, they were like, oh, it's going to be this this really sweet girl. I think they said who it, it was like her having brown eyes and blonde hair was like blowing their mind or something. And they were like, whoa what's this um and then britney spears comes in at the last second she nails it and imagine like all these famous kids getting this show and not you it was interesting to me reading this book that an adult i mean she's even reading the book she's so much more successful than i even knew she was because i didn't know about her clothing line and all that stuff but she's so successful and she's still bothered by this thing that happened when she was like what 12 but I really respect a woman who has a nemesis. And like in this moment, Britney Spears becomes like her nemesis. And that like being, she would never describe it this way because she's so sweet, but she's obviously like a little bit fueled by wanting to beat Britney. And I relate to that. Yes. 
when yes, we talk a lot about our nemesis and what they mean to us. And yeah, th- that's a, there's a positive side to it. They can really inspire you to work harder. To keep going. <laughs> to keep going. To just shove it in that woman's face. Or man. <laughs> because I will say, in the book, after she blows her audition, child Justin Timberlake is like, oh my God, what did you do? So sh- shady little boy. Um And she quotes him in the book. Okay, so then we kind of go into a childhood portion of the book, and she has her first kiss, and I hated this part. The kid asked her dad for permission to kiss her, and then she runs in after this, like, little date after Valentine's, and is like, I had my first kiss, and her dad was like, I know, but just for tonight only. And she's like, oh, thanks, Dad. Also, they, like, creepily set it up. Like, they gave her mints beforehand. And, like, yeah. like they knew. It was very um, – I feel like a big theme in this book is her parents are very inappropriate. <laughs> like Very inappropriate. And, like, from – I think we definitely saw it in the press when her dad would be like, check out these double Ds. But, like, from 12 years old, he controls her sexuality through this – even through her very first kiss. Her dad's in control of her sexual encounters, which is – very weird. And I'll say like, again, having also had a similar religious upbringing, it's normal in that religion for your parents to control your sexuality in the sense of telling you, no, don't do it. Um, that <laughs> is acceptable within that culture. It's weird that they're like, no, we're going to uh, negotiate when and how you do it. That's yes. Yes. Inappropriate. And the asking for permission thing. It, yeah. That the kid knew. The kid knew to go to her dad. And I guess it's because he was a pastor at the church. So, you know. Um, Okay, so then she gets into a chapter about how um, her family had another family they like to hang out with. And one of their um, kids, a daughter, uh, would molest Jessica at night. And she doesn't go into lots of detail, but basically she slept between this kid and Ashley Simpson, her little sister, so that it would block Ashley from it. And she finally, after multiple trips, um, gets up the courage to tell her family that it's happening. And in the moment, they're like, oh, my God, I knew something was going on. And then they just turn around. They never see that family again. But they also never talk about it. But here's what happens in between those two things. And this was one of those things that I was like, did Jessica include this in the story because she understands what this means for her psychologically? Or does she not understand? Because I don't think she's explicit about it. But she tells her parents that she got molested. And while she's doing that, she's scratching a lottery ticket. And then she wins the lottery. She wins like a couple hundred dollars. Her parents turn the car around, go to 7-Eleven to collect the lottery winnings or whatever, and then never talk about her molestation again. And so she gets the message, money is what covers up problems. Yeah, money makes it better. That's what she kind of like keeps doing for the rest of her life. And I do think it's typical in religious families to like sweep um, any kind of abuse or stuff like that under the rug. But it was, it's weird that like, they were like, oh, now that we have $300, this is fine. It's like a weird version of it. Yeah. And I feel like we, I feel like we keep coming up against the same thing where it's like in, in between the lines, you really get incredible clarity from this book, but it is not spelled out. And so it kind of leaves you being like, do they know that this is clear? You know, I mean, and or are they doing this on purpose? Is it respectful? Is it beautifully written? Is this Kevin Carl Leary at his best, or is this Jessica laying it down without burning bridges? But yeah, absolutely. That and it's the whole lottery story is crazy, and they just take her money. Oh boy, um, foreshadowing. Okay. 
foreshadowing. So she has a lot of sweet childhood stories that really explain her being close to her cousin who passes away and getting bullied at school. Uh, she's called a lesbian, which is was the choice insult of the 90s, I believe. Um, happened at my school, happened to me, where they would be like, you're a lesbian. And it just automatically meant like the worst thing you could ever say. Just so homophobic, which is something about the 90s I absolutely don't miss. I listened to this book as an audiobook, which I have to say I recommend. She's a very, she, the way she reads it adds a lot to the book. But the story about her cousin, I was truly walking down the street sobbing, yeah. like not a cute cry, like a full sob of how like, again, she felt like she had to continue, like God wanted her to continue like her cousin's work, which was just like, being kind and taking care of people. Yeah. Um, I thought that was really great. I thought that was really great. And I will say the that was really beautiful. And the getting bullied at school really spoke to me because I was really bullied at school too. And like, she's a superstar and she's famous and she's whatever. But like, those wounds cut so deep and they almost never... Oh, do they go away? Do they ever go away? Oh, God, please. I hope they go away one day. I mean, hopefully uh, they went away as she wrote the book. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Hopefully every time a book is sold, just a little piece goes, oh, I'm healed. <laughs> well, um, yeah, because those, those bullies, they haven't sold any books. So. They haven't sold any books. Exactly. Um, so then um, she's like really getting into music. She's trying to get her music career off the ground and she keeps having intense pain. And she basically, once she finally goes to the gynecologist she finds out she has to have her right fallopian tube taken out and she's crying and she's like i want to have kids one day please don't take my fallopian tube and they're like we have to take it because um she had like a, a cyst on it which is very common in women and he's like you'll be able to get pregnant every other month basically but you'll have this you know a I didn't know this for a long time, but like your period shifts sides of yeah. your ovaries where like one month it's the right ovary, one month it's the left. Um, I know that because only one of them hurts. I have a good month and then a bad month. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're also the smartest person I've ever met in my life. So of course you knew that, but it really blew my mind. Um, and she has to have surgery and she's like, don't give me a scar because, you know, it's the 90s, low rise jeans, everything's abs. And she was just like, please don't leave a scar. This story... Actually, this story really got me because when we were at Second City together that first year, I started having intense pain um, on the right side of my body. I was such an idiot. I was like, am I gluten intolerant? That seems to be something people are talking about. <laughs> um, and I was in improv classes and I was constantly, it was like hurt to stand up, but I was, I didn't understand why. Finally, one day my, my stomach just felt like it had like a watermelon in it. So I rode my bike to a doctor's clinic uh, that I found on Yelp because I just really, I don't know, I was new in the city. I was like, how do you find a doctor? Like, I didn't know how anything worked. And um, when I was there, he was like, oh my God, you're pregnant. And I was like, what? <laughs> I have not had sex in multiple years. <laughs> uh, but I'm like, so, but he was treating me like I didn't know what sex was. Like, he was like, have you ever had sex? And I was like, yes. And he's like, all right, you're pregnant. And I was like, oh my God. No, I and think I there's a statute of limitations on sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, but I'm just like, oh, I guess I was in a hot tub and there was like a super sperm. Like, I'm just trying to be like, I guess I'm fucking pregnant. Um, and he comes back and he's like, huh, you're not pregnant. I can't believe it. And then, you know, this is a long story. We got to get back to Jessica Simpson. But basically, at the end of the day, I had a seven and a half pound dermoid tumor on my right ovary 
It's that's the size of a child. That's a baby. So I guess you know. No wonder he said I was pregnant. I was just like, I have wide hips. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that story is a lot longer. But I had my right ovary taken out, and before I went under, they were like, we might give you a hysterectomy. We don't know what we're gonna find. At the time, they thought it was cancer. That's a fun part of the story. And so they're like, we might have to remove everything. What's weird is that I've never had this kind of urge to have kids. Like my mom grew up being like, all I want to do is be a mom. I never really had that. But when they were like, we're going to give you a hysterectomy, I was like, I kind of want the option. It feels like I should have a choice, even though like I think it'll be no, but like I'd like to decide. And I guess when I woke up, all I did was ask, um, can I have kids? And they were like, maybe. And then I fell back asleep. (laughs) And then just to fully bring this around, I went to the gyno last year because I was having pains on my right side again. And I was like, do I have another? Because they can come back. And I was like, do I have another dermoid? And she was like, no, you don't have an ovary at all. The little part they'd like left inside me just disappeared. And so I'm, I'm a one ovary lady. And I felt at one with Jessica Simpson. And I was so happy she shared this story. Okay, so uh, from the beginning of the book, she has horrific anxiety. And there's actually a page I wanted to read. I started to hear voices when I was alone at night, waiting for the sleeping pill to kick in. Half asleep, I would examine myself for flaws in the mirror, and a mental chorus would weigh in. They were intrusive and so mean that I was really convinced Satan was behind them. Okay, so we all have these horrible voices in our head, but the fact that she thought Satan was in her head telling her that she had ugly zits and was fat and was stupid uh, really forms a lot of her identity as a kid. And honestly, I kind of wish I could have blamed mine on Satan, but I didn't believe in God at that's that point. The, I mean, that's the the thing of like the patriarchy. It's like um, the patriarchy tells you your body has to be a certain way and you're bad if it's not. And then it also tells you Satan's a thing so that you blame that instead of like, maybe you should blame the record exec or your dad or whoever it is that yeah. made you feel that way about Cosmo your body. magazine. Yeah. yeah. Po- government <laughs> policies. 100. They're like, no, I guess it's Satan telling you that you're too fat when literally Tommy Matolo tells her she's too fat. But we'll get to that part. Um, OK, so then we cut to the Nick Lachey years. This is when she's like 17, 18 They met in 1998. They married in 2002. They announced their divorce three years later in 2005, and the divorce was finalized in 2006. She puts this in the book. I thought this was the most incredible shade. I don't even, again, I don't know if she meant it as shade, but this was so funny to me. Um, She said 98 Degrees, Nick Lachey's band, uh, thought of themselves as a working class boy band. It, literally, the sentence is, a tougher working class boys to men or in sync. And I was like, this is so embarrassing for them. She's, she's also like, they're, and I, I don't think this is shade. I think she sincerely means it. She's like, the other boy bands, like I guess Backstreet Boys or whatever, are like put together by the record labels. But Nick Lachey's band, they were like real friends who decided to make a band. And so they're more artistic and better. And I think she like genuinely thinks that and is like, like looks up to him. For yeah. I mean, I was like, it is, I mean, just be a, a cute boy band to think you're a working class boy band as you like sing about how it's 98 <laughs> degrees out is so funny. And also a, a tougher working class boys to men, boys to men would kick their ass. <laughs> any day of the week. Any day of the, like, what are you doing thinking you're a working class, whatever. Okay. So 
When they meet, keep in mind, um, she's 18, he's 25, he is seven years older than her. And seven years, not not too big of a difference, except she's a virgin. She's a famous virgin. He's a he's he's a 25-year-old dude who been fucking. So he's with like this young, very, um, very sheltered virgin, and that's a big part of their relationship. And and she's like just starting her career when they meet, and he's already famous. And I think, you know, there's been so much talk about like this, these age gaps recently. And I really think that like, if you are someone who always wants to win, the smartest thing you can do is find someone who's just starting out, who's brand new, who has no experience. And they like, and that's exactly how their relationship plays out. She's always looking up to him, asking him questions, asking him for advice. And then the second that her career takes off and she starts to know what she's talking about, he's no longer interested. And that is just like so cliche and we watch the pattern play out so many times. And then when we hear about a new relationship like that, men are like, how dare you assume he has bad intentions? Like, it's always bad. It's been bad every time. (laughs) 100%. Like, what would compel you to date a virgin when you're not and it's not your religious belief and and someone who, 100%. This reminded me of my mom's first husband who met her when she was 14 Um, and he was 21 and she was a virgin. And he wanted it that way. He wanted a virgin who he could groom to be his perfect wife. And the funniest part about that is that I think he's like 5'4", 5'5". And when he met my mom, she was as well because she was a child. A child. And then she grew up to be 5'10". And towered over him. <laughs> and he was so upset about it. But it's like my favorite revenge. She was just like, okay, now I'm going to be a tall warrior goddess. New rule. Don't date anyone who isn't done growing. Yes. If they're not <laughs> done growing, you don't get to marry them. Um, shout out to my mom, the best woman in the world. Okay. So she's such a child. And that's actually a theme in a lot of these memoirs. Uh, Demi Moore, Cher, women who are robbed of their childhoods, but they're like these fabulous celebrities. But in reality, they're missing like basic experiences, basic formative skills. And that's also Jessica Simpson. Um, So when she's 20, she has her first sip of alcohol and asks Nick Lachey permission to like, can I have a drink? And then she's like, oh, fuck, I love this foreshadow. And he's like, get in the hot tub to make it stronger, which is such like 20, 26 year old advice. Um, now it's she's also like, like, I mean, the theme of like, someone has to ask her father permission to kiss her. And then she just transfers that over to, she has to ask Nick Lachey's permission to drink. And in the book, Nick and her dad never get along because each of them wants to be the person who's in control of her. Yes, 100%. Then that relationship, it gets, that part of it gets psychotic. Okay, but first, we're with, now we're with uh, her record label where Tommy Mottolo tells her she's fat, even though she weighs, I don't know, 110 pounds. She becomes weight obsessed. And then her mom to help is like, I'll do Atkins with you. Um, Did you ever do Atkins? We have to pause and talk about Atkins. The diet that was like, all you have to do is eat bacon to be skinny. And everyone was like, sounds good to me. What? I mean, I'm so depressed to say I also did the Atkins diet. And it's just like, eat meat all day. I never did it. But I remember someone gifted me the book. And even like as a what young a gift. teen being like, what this a- is fucking rude. Yeah, I, was, I was like, a gift? What? <laughs> all right. So they're trying to make Jessica basically into a sex pot virgin, but also anorexic looking because um, anorexia was the hot look in the 90s. Like basically to be hot in the 90s, you just had to take up as least 
amount of space as possible. Yeah. Like, oh, is, is this a woman barely existing? <laughs> what, what a hottie. <laughs> um, she's been so sheltered um, and people think she's dumb, but I think this thing you're pointing out, she's being controlled by men. She grew up religiously. She just wasn't experienced. She's not actually stupid. She's sheltered. No one lets her be her own person. Um, so then she makes and like a- Also, I think people are, I mean, maybe we'll talk about this later, but people are hiding a lot of things from her. And it's like so unfair to not tell someone the details and then be like, you don't get it. You're dumb. It's like, they weren't telling her, like, I'm sure she's not reading contracts and knowing like what's actually happening with her money and her career and everything. Totally. And then turn around and call her dumb. Like it's upsetting. It is really upsetting. And 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 I think this is the one of the beautiful parts of reading her book. We just thought of her as dumb. All of culture thought of her as dumb. And then you read this book and you're like, I what the the crimes we commit against women. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they make her go to media training because she has all these like gaffes in the media that became famous. Like, like she didn't know what this show Sex in the City was. Basic things. And people are like, you're stupid. It's like, no, she just doesn't get to watch TV because she's doing the Atkins diet and singing your stupid songs. Um, okay, so Nick and her break up, they go back like on and off, but then 9-11 happens. And they're like, Oh, we feel our humanity. Let's get married. <laughs> okay, so exactly what you were talking about with her dad and Nick um, and the engagement. Uh, I want to read a passage from that. My father was awful through the whole engagement. There's just no nice way to put it. He continually told me I was making a mistake and told Nick to his face that I was too young to get married. It was another thing for my parents to fight over since my mom always took Nick's side... <laughs> And when he would criticize me over some new thing. What you have to understand about my mom is that she's a tough crowd. My dad is a people pleaser, but people have to work to impress her. To this day, I think a lot of what I do is to win her approval. Her backing up whatever cutting thing Nick said to me gave it more weight and gave him license to do it more. I really want to see this book turn into a movie um, because... What I like about it and is so well written is that she allows the characters to be really complex because like her dad objectively sucks in this moment. He's like ruining her marriage, but he is right. She is too young to get married. <laughs> like it's like he's a hundred percent right, but he's being a jerk about it. And her mom is like being nice, but she's wrong. And it's just like she doesn't make anyone be black and white. Like she really shows the complexity of people in a really interesting way. Yeah, I, that's true. Except I will say like, for me, this, this is where I'm like, does she realize how abusive her parents are? Which which is almost an impossible revelation to have. It's it's sort of impossible for you to know that because that's your means of survival. So you can't mm -hmm. believe, if you believe that you're not going to survive. But like, she's like, oh, my mom's a tough crowd. But her mom was a green when Nick would criticize her, which is like, that's, fucking intense yeah i think there is like the religious patriarchy thing is in there too because this is when she's young but you'll see it's a pattern with her boyfriends later in the book that like they always take the man's side i think they just always take every man's side like if jessica <laughs> met a man on the street and he told her to do something they would probably take that man's side yeah. i think it's just in that religion women are nothing like women are supposed to be subservient to men even if that man is just a boyfriend. Even if that man is Nick Lachey and a wife beater singing, <laughs> like, what is it? Unas La Noche, like some horrible uh, broken Give Spanish song. There it is, yeah. Oh, Una Noche. Okay, I guess yeah, yeah. whatever. <laughs> I had this, like, blur in my ear of, like, what... It's just, like, that's who you're trusting with your daughters? Like, whatever. 
100%. So then, okay, her dad hates it the whole time. He and Nick are fighting for control over her, even down to the point that when she's walking down the aisle, her dad is like, we don't have to do this. You want to walk away? And she's like, oh, my God, dad. And but he was right. It's not nice. But he was right. <laughs> he Had was. she walked away right then, the rest of the book goes very differently that's, and probably better. Okay. That's so true. But he was right for the wrong reasons, yeah. which is so tough. Um, but yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, and then, you know, they're doing newlyweds. It's 2003. This is one of our like first huge hit reality shows. We see them like get in the car and Nick's like, we got to have sex. And like, I think a big part, uh, I hate saying this because it grosses me out. But like, I think he was like loved that she was a virgin because I just think anyone who wants to be with a virgin has to have some weird fucked up thing about it. And Mm -hmm. then you got to get married. You got to get to that wedding day. And so then he's like, let's have sex. And you're like, oh, God. Um, And she's she's still very young at this point. Um, So her so after they get married, her star starts to climb and his does not. His his stays the same and it starts to break them. So they're even though they're doing the newlyweds, Rolling Stone magazine is like, let's have you both on the cover. And then at the last second, they're like, actually, just Jessica. And that's that cover of her vacuuming in her underwear. And in the book, she says the problem was if Nick lost, so did I. Which is to say, he could be the more successful one, but she couldn't be the more successful one. Because he would make her life hell if she was. Yes, exactly. Which is also, it's as common as a fibroid cyst on a right ovary in (laughs) Ashley's family. (laughs) That's how common it is. Um, So... On this reality show, the, newly, the Newlyweds, um, that's where we get, like, that moment of, like, is it chicken or is it fish that kind of haunts her her whole life? Um, and then the two, it gets to the year 2004. The chapter heading for this title is Success Has Made a Failure of Our Home. Basically, she's succeeding. He's oh, not. I forgot. I blocked it out. I he, forgot about this. Isn't that unreal? She feels he's cheating and is like going behind her back. And he feels she's annoying by asking if he's cheating. And then. Oh, she... no, wait. The, I'm before this. OK, go ahead. The problem that they have is that she's so successful. She's going on tour. She's selling records, you know, whatever, that she's not cleaning the house. Yes, and buying and groceries. It's like, oh, your whole marriage problem then would be solved by hiring a housekeeper, which you guys are two pop stars. You can certainly do. But he refuses because Because he's a married. working class pop star. Working they're class married, guys do it himself. <laughs> but their wives do it. Like, you yes, have to their take wives care of me. Take caring, taking care of me means you have to grocery shop and you have to cook and clean, even though she's never done those things before because she's been a pop star since she was a child. She doesn't even know how to do those things. And they can afford to have someone else do them. And he still makes it a problem because he wants a woman to cater to him. And this is my whole thing. If you want that, there are plenty of bitches that will do that. <laughs> Great Don't point. marry a pop star if you want a woman to sweep your floor. There are plenty of floor sweeping women out there. And then he starts cheating on her. <laughs> yeah. And she doesn't say like he cheated. But when I read it, I was like, oh, he cheated for sure. He cheated. He 100% lot. cheated. <laughs> yeah. It feels like he was like, fucking every hostess um and also, then, it seemed like he wanted her to know he wasn't like trying to hide it either which i think is even more rude yeah oh 100 and but i think the whole thing to her credit she includes his side of it was that she was cold and unloving and didn't give him attention so you can just see him going up to some girl and being like my wife jessica simpson doesn't hug me and they're like <laughs> you nick lachey i'll do it um and then she probably came over and made the broccoli and then fucked him so jessica books dukes of hazard which was released in 2005. 
And it's in the middle of this. She goes off to set. She has this freedom from Nick, freedom from the newlyweds. And she has an emotional affair with the per the, the last person I would have guessed, Johnny Knoxville. <laughs> um, and it's because her marriage is falling apart. And she says it's an emotional affair. She says emotional affairs are worse than sex. I will say this, and I've said this before. I think you say you have an emotional affair because you are not ready to admit that you also fucked them. <laughs> you did have an emotional affair. You definitely, y'all, y'all did shit. I don't believe people ever Ooh, have just emotional affairs. I believe that they didn't have sex, actually. <gasps> Why? Here's what. Here's my take. I think that Jessica has never had a friend before. So she's like, oh, no, I got close to a man. I had an emotional affair. And it's like, maybe you just made a friend, bitch. Y'all, like, you're telling <laughs> you. They, they're, they're like sitting in a bar, having a drink, talking about their feelings. And then she's like, oh, no, I had an affair. It's like, no, people do that. I, I, that's OK. But they did know. But then they wrote there, like there love letters there. to each other. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a great take. And I and I still think that they had sex and not because like <laughs> Jessica Simpson particularly is lying, but but like. Friends in my life, good girlfriends who could tell me they fucked someone have been like, I had an emotional affair. And and I go, you fucked him, right? And they're like, no. And then three months later, they're like, yeah, I was fucking him the whole time. You know, <laughs> you're just like not ready to say it. Um, and what I will also say about this part of the book is that Johnny Knoxville is married during this. So they're, they're both cheating. And granted, he and his wife are divorced now. But even as his ex-wife, if I picked up this fucking book and read the chapter of him cheating on me with Jessica Simpson, I'd lose my mind. I'd lose my mind. I would drive my car into a pile of Jessica Simpson books. <laughs> and she is, I think, a very respectful writer who is respecting people even as she's kind of telling stories. So I could see that. Although I do think that this was just the first friend she ever made. Um, all right. I think that's nice. I think that's a nice take. And <laughs> I'm also glad she told us about the affair. So I'm sorry, ex-wife, but like this is for all of us and it helps all <laughs> of us to learn. Um, okay. So I want to read a, a, a passage from this part of the book. Uh, Casey knew my biggest secret. Casey is her assistant. Um, that I was still in touch with Johnny Knoxville. We wrote these flowery love letters back and forth, often at night with Nick passed out in the bed next to me. We talked about music and I would listen to the Johnny Cash songs he suggested just to feel like we were together. Sorry, pausing to throw up. Um, <laughs> men introducing you to music you didn't know about is like my least favorite um, way, way to get in someone's pants. Whenever I wanted to read Casey some gushy letter from him, she would refuse. It was like Johnny and I were prison pen pals, two people who wanted so much to be with each other but were kept apart by bars, by our stars, by our respective spouses. Is, um, is Casey the one who ends up picking Nick eventually? Oh, now I don't remember. There's like an assistant slash friend. And first of all, that's the first problem. Sorry, celebrities. You guys got to stop having assistant slash friends. Um, but I think like, yeah, she like disapproves of the Johnny Knoxville thing. And then she disapproves of something else. And then when Nick and Jessica get divorced, she kind of like picks Nick. And as I feel like that's what happens when you pay for friends like well you know what's crazy about you singing this Ashley because when their marriage blows up this is another passage I wanted to read this is what Nick says to her that kind of is really the first big knife he said your friends don't exist you just pay them to be around you it was a knife cutting me down to the rawest marrow okay 
That's weird writing, but whatever. <laughs> well, that's Kevin. I promise that, that's you that's Ke- That's Kevin Carl O'Leary. Jessica sure. didn't write that. Jessica did not write. He cut her down to the Rosemary. <laughs> uh, and he said, and your parents are only around because they're on the payroll. So, I mean, yeah, you might be right. And he might have been saying something correct. And maybe she's even including it in the book to be like, yeah, my parents are on the payroll. But like, your husband doesn't say that stuff to you, at least not in that way. That's not the way you say it. Yeah. Well, that's why um, those people who you let get that close to you are the people who can hurt you the most because he only said that because he knew there was some truth to it and because he knew that it was her greatest fear. Right. And so perhaps you can tell from this podcast, but I'm a very uh, anxious person. I, I operate on a high frequency and going to sleep is hard for me. It's hard to fall asleep. It's hard to stay asleep. And so the other night I got Next Evo in the mail, at, which is a CBD company. And I ate one of their strawberry flavored CBD gummies that was for sleep. And in the middle of the night, I had one of my normal wake ups and I thought to myself, ooh, I'm like, I feel so nice. I'm just going to go right back to bed. And as I was falling asleep, I had the thought of like, wow, I'm, I'm going back to sleep. And in the morning, I had forgotten I ate the gummy and I was like, how do, why did I sleep so well? And then I remembered it. So the next night I'm like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to try this again. Let's see if magic sleep happens. And lo and behold, I slept wonderfully. So I am so excited to talk about Next Evo Naturals because they have developed a clinically tested water soluble form of CBD and their gummies and capsules are proven to work faster and absorb four times better than oil-based products. I am assuming this is the fancy schmancy science that made this work because I have totally taken oil (laughs) droplets of CBD before, like during quarantine. Yes, or my husband, he was just, we were just dropping CBD into each other's mouths and you know, it didn't do much. So this is thrilling that I felt this way. I hope you could feel this way too. They also have their strongest gummy ever, the new extra strength daily wellness CBD gummies. They also have CBD lotion and you know, you know, I mean, instantly on my skin. Just anything that can help me relax, I'm so into it. Next Evo is the only brand that has conducted human clinical studies to test the value of their products, and their label contents are 100% guaranteed, so what you see is what you get. Leave oil behind and start the year with more effective and fast-acting CBD from Next Evo Naturals. Get 25% off using code GLAMOROUS at nextevo.com. That's 25% off at nextevo.com, N-E-X, T-E-V-O.com with promo code Glamorous. When you think of the messiest celebrity feuds of all time, who comes to mind? Is it Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun? Maybe it's Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan, or just about anyone from any reality TV franchise. Dis and Tell is a podcast from Wondery, hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each hilarious episode will take you through one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds and serve you a little dose of chaos every week. They recently covered the story of one of the greatest feuds you've probably never heard about, Prince and Michael Jackson. Even though this feud never really played out in the press, there's still plenty of drama and a lot to unpack. And the explosive and dramatic fallout between Candy Burris and Phaedra Parks of The Real Housewives of Atlanta. They went from TV besties to sworn mortal enemies and their relationship ended with a criminal allegation that rocked Bravo and its fandom for years to come. So if you're ready to gossip and add some more chaos to your life, follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can listen to Disintel early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, I mean, you hope that you break up the second someone says something like that to you. And of course, that's not what happened. Uh, but they did break up shortly after. She yes. did a good job. Because yes. I feel like there are women who stay in that relationship for 10 years and Jessica was not one of them. 100%. And I will say, I bet Johnny Knoxville telling about art and poetry and whatever was an inspiration that there's better men out there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it's 2005. This is when their marriage is ending. They divorce. They Again, they don't divorce right away, but she does do it pr- pretty quickly. Um, <clears throat> she journals throughout her life, something I heavily relate to. I had a um, truly scary level of journals as a kid, <laughs> a, a level of journals that should get you hospitalized. I had 21 as a kid. Um, and they insane. were like, that's truly insane. And I don't know if you remember, but um, like at, at Borders Books or Barnes & Noble, they would have those art books with blank pages that you buy yeah. for $5. Those are my journals. They're not tiny. Oh, I would- yeah. buy them so many times, write one sentence in it and not be able to continue. But I just love the idea of being that person that you really were. Oh, that's well, that's really nice. I filled each one to the brim and I, sh- I should be in jail for it. <laughs> um, so she loves to journal, though. She writes in her journal after divorcing Nick, um, old journal, new life, married, divorced, love lost. I'm lost, yes, but believe in this moment I will be found, found by me. I need to outgrow passing time, pretending womanhood, and actually find the woman waiting. Acknowledge that she resides deep in me, but I haven't met her. I move only by faith and the strength you give me to introduce us. It's a full moon, and I forgive myself and the girl I was with this moonlight. I'm sad but happy with the new day and the wonderful sun that will come. Whatever you are going through, the sun will come. Listen, that moved me. Yeah. I'm telling you, I cried multiple times reading this book and because hearing, hearing her voice also, like she genuinely, like she's gone through some really crazy, really hard stuff in her life. And we're skipping over a lot of it. People should buy this book. Oh yeah. I, as much as we're dishing, so much is in the book yeah. we're leaving behind. She's um, telling us about it, not because like she's a celebrity and at some point you have to write a memoir. I think she genuinely, I believe, wants to help people with her story. And you can feel that through the whole thing that she's like, don't make this mistake. Don't do this. And she really is helping people through so many different kinds of things in the way she wrote this book. Okay. So uh, it's 2006. She's 25. She's divorced and she is living it up. She alludes that she dated every single person in Hollywood that she ever wanted to date. And I just love that. I Um, I love it. She also gets her like first own house, which is amazing. And I truly believe every woman should live alone for some period of time and just experience aloneness. And so I love when she like finally gets to have that. And then she fucks every dude in town, which is even better. Which is even better. And I totally agree with you on that living alone part. Um, Nick, meanwhile, writes a divorce album. You know, his big divorce tour where I guess like in the 90s, we all felt bad for men who were divorced. We're like, oh, poor him. Um, So his divorce album was called What's Left of Me, as if he had nothing left to give. He was just a 28 year old who couldn't go on. The songs are about like how much he fucking hates her. Um, And this dude comes over to her house and he's like, Jess, I just want you to hear the divorce album from me. He plays her the songs, making eye contact with her. He's like, and now listen to this hit. Now listen to this song. He's like singing them to her or whatever. He gets to a song where he's literally just like, I hate her. I'm so annoyed by her, whatever. 
Then Jessica writes in the book, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to make him feel better. So I slept with him. And I, th- at this point in the book, I'm like running around in the house like, yes, yes. <laughs> like the amount of horrible, horrible, horrible men who looked me in the face and in some way or the other was like, I'm horrible. And I was like, great, let's make out. You want to fuck? It's <laughs> um, like, like well, we make-, make it better. Yeah. Like she wanted to make it better. She didn't know what else to do. And, and the, and I just, I just loved her for admitting that. And it also made me laugh at Nick Lachey singing to her. <laughs> Also, like a theme in the book, we're going to talk about John Mayer, but with John Mayer and Nick Lachey, she was like, he was such a good writer and I just wasn't that as good of a writer as him or whatever. And I will give him, John Mayer is a very good songwriter. Nick Lachey. Nick Lachey. Baby, come on. Come on. We're just that. Yes, we're going to have higher self-esteem than looking up to Nick Lachey as a songwriter. One, I'm sorry. 100%. 100%. And so, okay. So Nick then does a music video about he and Jessica's marriage. Literally, the music video is restaging newlyweds. There's a camera crew around. The woman who plays the role of Jessica in Nick Lachey's divorce single is Vanessa Manillo. Vanessa Lachey. Who is now Lo- Vanessa Lachey. They got married. They've been, they seem very happy together. They met by her playing Jessica in the music video. I passed away. So then, uh, this is one of my favorite parts of the story. When Jessica and Nick get together, he's like, we need a prenup. I'm a big star. You're nobody. We need a prenup. Jessica's devastated. She's like, that means we're going to get divorced. I mean, you are. Um, and she's like, no, I won't do a prenup. But this has to be love. He doesn't get a prenup. By the time they divorce, Jessica is a bajillionaire from her fashion line. And Nick is like, give me all your money. There was no prenup here. And her dad and Nick fight over like what money she's going to give him. And she tells her dad, don't worry. Give him whatever he wants. I'm going to make it back. Give or take a billion. And she does. Yeah. Um, and she does with her fashion line, which I don't think he, he had a single part of. And so, but that was kind of a really interesting story to me. And also reason why I am very pro prenup. Not even yeah. married, and I think they're a great idea. I think we should have them for every relationship in our life. Like, yeah, if I, this ends, how does it go respectfully? <laughs> also, I think, like, I don't understand the idea, and I say this as a not married person, that, like, because we're in love, you're entitled to half of my belongings. Like, half of these books on my shelf are yours because I like sleeping with you. I don't get it. I think (laughs) even if you're not super rich, you should have a prenup and everyone should leave with what they came with. Yeah. I I think it gets trickier when, when it's like you were the mom or you were the stay at home parent. You took care of everything. I did front the bills, but now, and I, I, your career was our family. That's when it gets weird. But other than that, fuck off, Nick Lachey. Um, Go make your own money with your divorce album. When we come back, the John Mayer chapters. Okay, we're back. And now we are back for uh, one of the just juiciest parts of the book, the John Mayer chapters. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, the John Mayer chapters. So John Mayer and Jessica Simpson were on and off again from 2006 to 2007. You guys, that is one year for this amount of fuckery. So she meets John Mayer. He is a psychopath, uh, but it reads as love. And what happens is basically like he's just so obsessed with her, I guess, where he's just like, oh, your body. I'm so focused on you. She said, "Um, I would get up to go to the bathroom and John would ask, where are you going? 
And when I was married, my ex-husband couldn't be bothered to figure out what city I was in. So it felt safe to be desired. However, that's psychotic. Um, And they get into a relationship where John Mayer then breaks up with her nine times. Nine separate times. This man will break up with her. Um, and in the relationship, he, like, kind of like you said, it's like, he's so smart. He's so amazing. And he's like, I'm really smart. I'm really amazing. And he makes her feel stupid. She makes people proof her text messages before she sends them to him because she doesn't know what to say. She has conversations with girlfriends of like, how do I talk to such a brilliant man? And she really starts drinking to calm her anxiety. This is kind of the start of the alcohol problem. And then one day, John Mayer is like, why do you drink so much? Have Xanax instead. And then that's the start of the pill problem. I've definitely been in this relationship with like, when men are insecure, they're just like, I know I'll make you feel even dumber than I feel. And then (laughs) you'll have to be with me, a dumb person. And that's like clearly what he's doing. But again, and this is why women shouldn't get married at fucking 18. She hasn't dated a lot. Like a woman her age normally would have had five or six boyfriends before this and would have recognized this behavior in John Mayer and walked away. But she's only been with one person. I mean, I guess she dated um, on her little period of dating around or whatever, but she hasn't had enough experience by the time she meets John Mayer to be like, oh, this is bad news and walk away quickly. 100%. And yeah, I definitely, I was in a relationship like this myself. Um, She said he would dump me, then come back saying he had discovered he loved me after all. I always saw it as him mercifully taking me in from the cold. Every time John returned, I thought it was a continuation of a love story while my friend saw a guy coming back for sex with some foolish girl. One of those times, I wrote him a gushing letter thanking him for realizing I was worthy of love, and it breaks my heart to see how I practice the wording in my journal. Quote, I promise to be myself as I search to become the woman you already see. Okay, so then uh, I just want to read the last page. Breaking up, getting back together, breaking up, getting back together. She said, did he repeatedly stab me in the heart or did I just keep running into the knife he aimed at me? And when I was um, recapping this book uh, in that hot tub, I thought of you, Ashley, and this advice you had given me once, the story you had passed on, and I saw it in what John Mayer was doing to to her. And I know this is a part that meant a lot to you. So I really want you to like read this passage and and give everyone the advice that that is so relevant. Yeah. So this is like one of the many times that John has broken up with her. Um, He sends, so this is John had broken up with me via email again. He'd followed it by sending me a song, Aerosmith's Angel, a 20-year-old message in a bottle that I wasted near about the entire night trying to decode. And so she says, like, he dumps her. She has a big performance the next day. She's going to sing for Dolly Parton. So this is a huge performance. It's 2006. It's the Kennedy Center Awards. It's at the Kennedy Center. It's a tribute to Dolly Parton, which means the people in the audience are just every celebrity, like every top person in the world you can think of, including the president. So this is a huge event. The night before, John Mayer sends her an email breaking up with her and sends her a song with like no context or information. So she stays up all night listening to the song over and over again, trying to figure out what he meant by it when she should have been rehearsing for her big performance the next day. In front of the Uh, president. Yeah. But more importantly, in front of Dolly Parton. Truly. (laughs) 
so she calls him. He doesn't answer to like answer her question of like, what the fuck does this song mean? So she starts drinking. She gets drunk before her performance for Dolly. Um, then she's like backstage. Her parents are like trying to get her to stop drinking, get dressed, pull herself together, you know, to do this performance. Um, here's <laughs> the quote. Just before it was time to go on, John called me back. It was ugly. And then he has the fight with her. So he dumps her the night before the performance. She tries to call him to have it out. He won't answer the phone. He waits until she's about to walk on stage. And that's when he calls to have this fight. They have a big fight. She keeps drinking. The moral of the story is she goes on stage to sing for Dolly and like completely bites it. She can't remember the words of the song. It's embarrassing. You know, like we know as performers, sometimes you have bad performances, but you could play it off and nobody knows. Like this is not one of those. No, she really, she walks off stage. She's like, I can't do this song. I'm sorry. And she just walks off in front of Jolly Parton, the president and like a massive crowd. Yeah. And there are like, I think it's still on YouTube. Like there are videos of it. It's, it's horrific. It's a horrible thing to have happen. And I feel like in the book, she's like, this is, you know, John Mayer was always breaking up with me because he was, you know, a bad guy. He was punishing himself and then he would write songs about it and then he would want to come back. And I think that this is another one of those questions. I don't know that she understands that he was sabotaging her career on purpose. And this is a thing. So when I started grad school, literally the first day of grad school, they give you a speech of like, this is what grad school is going to be like. Here's how to not lose your mind because a lot of people do. I guess it's like known that half of every class will end up dropping out of school. I think that if that's the case, maybe you should fix the school. But instead, (laughs) they give you a speech where they're like, you might go crazy. It happens to half of you. Here's what might happen. And one of the things that they warned us about was like, you will have people in your life who every time you have a big paper due or big presentation or you're going to a conference or whatever, they'll pick a fight the night before. And you need to just get that person out of your life because you are about to achieve something, you know, very rare and very great getting a PhD. And there might be someone in your life who is either jealous of you or feels insecure about it and doesn't want you to get a PhD. And the way that manifests is they'll start a fight with you the night before you defend your dissertation, the night before your big paper is due or whatever. And I was just lucky that someone told me that information at like 22 or whatever. And I have observed it in so many relationships and not just romantic friendships where every night before the big audition, before your big performance, before your big presentation at work, before your big pitch, that person will start a fight with you and upset you so that you can't do your best work the next day. And it's just such a common thing. And I think people think like, oh, maybe she's sad. Oh, maybe she's jealous, blah, blah, blah. No, that person is sabotaging you. They do not want you to succeed. Yeah. When I, I when you told me that, I flash back to different relationships in my life where it's like, oh, I was at this amazing thing and that's when they fought with me. And I yep. had to leave the amazing thing to like go and do this fight. Yeah. Anyone who you're in a healthy relationship with, there are fights in healthy relationships, but you have the perspective of being like, I'm angry at this person right now, but I love them and I want them to succeed. So I'm going to let them do their big presentation and then we can fight about it you know, later. Next yes. Week no, 100%. If you really love someone, you hold, you hold the fight. Um, okay. <laughs> so after John Mayer is going to come back, don't worry. Um, but then she goes and dates Tony Romo and you know, she's just 
off of this horrible relationship. She's dating this football player. I, I don't know if you guys remember this. She got booed out of cowboy games because he they started losing. And then the whole world was like, let's blame it on Jessica Simpson because of the patriarchy or Satan. What a, you know, your choice. And they booed <laughs> her. That's how much we hate women. Yeah. A group of men lose a football game. And you go, do we blame the quarterback? Do we blame all the halfbacks? Do we blame all the defensive line? The coaches, perhaps? The, the medical staff that's supposed to keep them healthy? Be ready to play. No, no, no. This woman in the stands, it was her fault. It was her. She never even set foot on the field and she <laughs> made us lose. So this is just one example of what it was like for Jessica Simpson to go to Tony Romo's games. This is what was broadcast on air. You know, so many people watch sports and this is what these people were putting out there just because Jessica Simpson wanted to watch her boyfriend play football. Skip wants us to take his camera. There we go. Oh, wait, that's not Skip. That's oh, Jessica. No way, Jay. My, my Tony's going to, he's going to make a touchdown and he's going to kick that ball and, and he's going to tackle those guys and he's, he's going to hit a home run and we're, we're going to beat those, those. Uh, Panthers. Oh, oh, are they made of chicken or tuna, Jay? <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> And yeah, I mean, just to be a woman trying to get out of a relationship and then a stadium of humans booze you out of the fucking field here's where i say go buy some jessica simpson high heels stomp <laughs> around in them support her the you shit owe her. she's been through um okay uh so then uh she gets to a chapter called death by mom jeans this is january 2009 <sighs> it's right when ashley and i are becoming best friends um so i also want to point out it's only 11 years ago and I'm going to say this because media is horrible, the world is horrible, everything's horrible. But when I read this, I was like, wow, we've made a lot of progress in 11 fucking years because this tiny little lady gets on stage in some unflattering jeans. People take pictures of her at this concert and the whole world calls her fat. I remember that incident and I pictured in my mind what I remember Jessica Simpson looking like. Yes. At this time when everybody's calling her fat. And then I want you to go Google it. Well, actually, go to, go to my Instagram. I'm going to do yeah. an Instagram dump, pictures of me and Ashley, pictures from this episode. Go to my Instagram. Because I, I did this, too, where I was like, I, I remembered. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember when she was fat. I remember how embarrassing I remember she was. gained weight. Yeah. yeah. And when you go and look at the pictures, it's going to be painful. Because this is a this is a tiny woman. Yeah. <laughs> and she's not fat in any way. She's not. It doesn't even matter. It, she, she's just so tiny. And the world sold what she looked like to us as fat. And we all had to walk around being like, if I don't look like that, I'm a monster. And she was basically anorexic. Yeah. Um, you had a really great passage to read um, about this part that uh, where you're like, this is where I fell in love with her. And uh, yeah, I also loved this part so much, too. Really made me love her. So she says, so I wouldn't tell anyone that the jeans were a size 25 waist, which is an American four. I wouldn't go on talk shows to say I was about 120 pounds when those photos were taken. The media guesstimated much higher numbers. The fact that I was that skinny and that I was deemed overweight still frightens me. No way was I going to go out there and turn on my sisters by saying, oh, no, you're mistaken. It was the angle and the fit. I'm actually a size four. What would that do to my young fans who may have been a size bigger or 20 sizes bigger? My publicist, Lauren, got so many requests for photo shoots and sit down interviews to, quote unquote, set the record straight. It seemed like negotiating with a hostage taker. If I disavowed having a regular body, nobody would get hurt, except everybody would get hurt. We refused the request, unwilling to play into the game of shaming women. It just like, it really made me love her because I remember that time. This is like a topic of conversation for so long. And she probably could have shut it all down by being like, no, 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 I'm acceptable. I'm only a size four. Let me go on and Howard Stern and step on the scale. Yeah. 
And she didn't do that, which means she took more abuse to not add to the abuse. And I will say I have had as a plus size person, so many moments in my life where friends, people who supposedly love me, who are a size four will be like, oh my God, I'm so fat. And I'm sitting next to them like, well, I guess you must fucking hate me. Cause if you think you're fat, I'm five of you. And it's so, um, it's just like this unthinking cruelty that happens all the time. And to hear someone like her who absolutely could have used that very normal thing to her advantage to end something painful for herself, be like, no, I'm not going to hurt people by trying to save myself is like amazing. And she didn't have to do it. Like this is absolutely a story of everybody else sucking and she didn't do anything wrong. And she chose to take even more of that abuse rather than hurt someone else, which I I completely, I completely agree with you. And I think, yeah, it's like, this is where like reading these memoirs, it's like, that was a cultural moment for all of us taught everyone a big part to hate themselves. And like the fact that she had the, the wherewithal to not hurt more people, because we've also seen celebrities be like, I'm not plus size. Right. And it's like, what? You think you're just hating yourself when you say like, oh, I suck, blah, blah, blah. But you're hating everyone when you do that, Um, which is an easy way to love yourself because you want to be a good person. So you don't actually have to love yourself. But if you want to be a good person, you should try. (laughs) (laughs) Or just uh, hate yourself privately at home so I don't have to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point, too. Um, Okay, so uh, I'm actually going to jump forward in the book because I think we should do this whole section together. She then does, um, later on in life, she does a beauty documentary called The Price of Beauty, which came out in 2010. She, like, goes around the world to, like, discuss different beauty, like, what beauty is in different cultures, and it's, like, really empowering. It's really uplifting. And so you're like, yes, oh, my God, she was so cool. She did this thing with when those pictures came out. She did this beauty documentary. And then, and then... And then she has has a kid, and now she uh, she goes and sees a rock doc who's basically uh, I guess a doctor with no conscience, and they they give you whatever pills you want in LA. They're just yeah, like a pills fancy... to fall asleep, then pills to wake back up, and pills, yeah. pills, 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 pills. Yes, and she gets on so many like uppers and diet pills that they actually help her drink more. <laughs> Um, like, because they're keeping her up. And so when drinking's trying to take her down, she's still going and it creates this horrible problem. And she schedules a liposuction where she's like, oh my God, I had a kid. I have the skin on my body, whatever. I have to get liposuction. Her doctor calls her and is like, you must cancel this surgery. Your liver is so shot from all these pills you've been on from drinking so hard. You, there's a high chance you will not survive the liposuction. She's a new mom. So she had her first two kids back to back in 2012 and 2013, and then they just had their third child in 2019, a year ago. Her current husband, Eric Johnson, is like, please don't get liposuction. Her mom's like, please don't do this, but she's convinced she has to. She then, and and this is this is where I'm like, she doesn't realize her mom's abusive. Because I think she told this to us as like, no, it was bad. I had to. She strips off all her clothes. She gets completely naked in front of her mom. She spells it N-E-K-K-I-D, naked. <laughs> and she goes, mom, see? And, and her mom, who had been like, you can't do this, looks at her naked body and goes, let's get you to that appointment. And it's like, it's so clear that this liposuction could kill her. And I really do think we live in a culture where we tell women it's better to be dead than fat. Yes. People are complicated and you can like 
know the right thing in this moment and not know it in another moment, especially when you're under all these pressures. But I think from this book and also like the Amy Winehouse documentary and the Whitney Houston documentary, a lot of women who are famous and the whole family is on the payroll, you lose your support system because everyone is supported by you being famous. And so a family that loved you would say, bitch, just be fat. Like, and if being fat means you get less professional opportunities, that's fine. Don't kill yourself trying to be thin. But a family that's on the payroll says, no, I don't get paid unless you get paid. And in this country, you don't get paid unless you look a certain way. So let's make sure you look that way. And it's so tragic and so heartbreaking. And we've seen celebrities die over this. And it's, I'm very happy Jessica didn't, but she certainly put her life in danger. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now we're, we're skipping back in time. We're going back to 2009 when Jessica and Tony Romo break up. He, he, he also wants her to like cook and clean for him, even though she's a fucking pop star and he makes millions of dollars as a football player. Um, and John Mayer has remained friends with her family. He showers at their house. He, goes, he plays guitar for them. And her mom's like, he's just so cute, Jessica. We just want to keep hanging out with him. So horrific. Don't you think John Mayer broke up her and Tony Romo on purpose? 100%. And she says it. I mean, I, th- okay. I think she pretty much says it. He, so he, she's dating Tony Romo. She's happy. It looks like it might work out. John stages an intervention with Jessica's parents. He convinces her parents and her friends that he loves her. He's finally ready. And she comes over to her parents' backyard where John Mayer is. And he's like... I want to be with you. I'm saying it in front of everybody. This is my big come to Jesus. And her parents are like, oh, Jessica, you should really be with John. Um, then Tony Romo finds out that she met with him and is like, okay, this is over. And then Jessica's like, I'm getting back together with John. And she drives over and she's like, it's finally us. This is our story. And when she gets back, she gets to him and she's like, "Where we can be together now. And he's like, oh, I mean, we're not together yet. I think we should just like see how it goes. And fully ruined her entire relationship, got her entire family behind it, and then wouldn't even be monogamous with her. And was like, we're still playing the field. Well, he also, like, sent a text message. Like, he sent her a text message being like, I can't work the shower. And Tony Romo sees it and is like, what the fuck is this? As any man would be. And she's like, no, no, no. John Mayer sometimes showers at my parents' house. And he's he's asking me about the shower at my parents' house. What man would believe that? That's insane. It's insane, except John Mayer's insane. And clearly her parents are insane. And I think he really was showering there. No, he was, but yes. he sent the text. Oh. If you're at my dad's house and the shower doesn't work, ask my dad about 100%. it. One hundred percent. Text so Tony would see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. He saw her being happy and said, I gotta ruin that somehow. Um, okay, so then she's like still with. John. They're going back and forth. Um, He does that horrific article where he calls her sexual napalm. She finds out he's been fucking other women. And he says... Also, he's very racist in the Okay, I was was just about to say that. He says the N-word. And he says he's not attracted to black women. And I do think we should say that more because people forget that happened. So, like, let's, like, bring up that happened and stop standing John Mayer. So she meets her husband, Eric, a former football player, a businessman. Um, It's... Read the book. But basically, he gets... Somehow gets to her house and... um, her opening line to him is that she dreamt she pooped a pig and she was looking at a dream book trying to um, trying to analyze her dreams. Yeah, because I like when I was reading the 
book, I was like, oh, I don't know if this guy is good enough for Jessica Simpson. Like, I think at this point in the story, he doesn't quite have a job. But then I was like, when she's like, I pooped a pig and he's like, well, I'm sticking around for this. I was like, you're a great man. You're great. You're a great match. Yeah. I I really loved him in this book. Um, They sleep together. The next morning he leaves her. He's like, I got to go. I have, I have to go to a Marianne Williamson workshop. Um, yeah. Quick tie in. Marianne Williamson is also a big character in the JLo memoir. Um, and she's oh, like, boy. <laughs> I know. And she's like, did he just leave me naked in bed to like go to this self-help workshop? Um, he proposes six months in. We love to see it. Yes. With a ruby. We also love an original gym, uh, her birthstone. And then they set the date to get married on 11-11-11, which is so dorky. But guess Very what? Jessica I, Simpson. I fucking love 11-11 too. I was like, good for you guys. Um, Very Jessica Simpson. Um, then she gets pregnant. And she gets pregnant on a month she wasn't supposed to be able to get pregnant. Literally, whatever happens with sperm egg. I, I don't know how that fucking works. You probably do. But it comes together. Um, and switches fallopian tubes on her behalf because she only has one. And it's basically like, whoops, we're supposed to be in this one. There's no fallopian tube. And then goes to the other one. And her doctor's like, I've never seen this before in my goddamn life. So because they don't study. Because they don't study us. You probably, (laughs) you might see. Oh, you're so right. Oh, God, you're so right. Just quick side note. They don't, they, they, every medical study is based on a group of white men. So if you are anything other than a white man, anything medical you are dealing with, they were the, what is it? The neutral like they're the they're the base. They're, that's yeah. they, everything was created for them. Okay, so Jessica is giving birth. This is the moment that her dad decides to tell her that uh, that he's going to divorce her mom when she's giving birth. And this goes back to that John Mayer thing, like why you pick certain moments in people's lives to try and stomp them out and take them for yourself. And you said that she did this very respectfully, where she respected her dad's story as his. I agree. So I'm going to read the passage. My anxiety made me freeze. I turned words over and over in my mind, trying to find just the right ones to express my pain. He said he didn't want to hurt me, and that's when Eric stepped in. He said something like, and he's speaking to her dad, each time you deny your own truth, something intense happens. You have to listen to the signs and take care of yourself. Jess has no extra energy to give to you right now. First of all, we love that husband. That's we husband. love that, him. You keep... <laughs> Keep that, man. Secondly, so good for him. And secondly, um, every time you deny your own truth. That, to me, feels like he, we're talking about Jessica's dad is gay. And he's been a pastor. He's been this religious guy his entire life. He's still not fully out. Uh, however, it also does I think does as seem, of now, he's still not. Yeah, I think as of now, he's still not. And yet, I'll put some pictures on my Instagram. He's showing up to places with very hot young men in robes that look like they came from velvet curtains. How? But, you know, he's not out. I I respect the way she, it's clear when you read the book, but she's not telling his story and I'm sure he'll write a book someday and that's when we'll. And and, and it's for him. No one should out anyone else. It's for him to talk about. That said, it is kind of like this big part of her life and why he divorces her mom. And also it is out. To be honest, it it is out. It's not that it's not out in culture. Um, So she, that's when she fires her dad as her manager. He's been her manager this whole goddamn time. Um, then she has her second kid in July 2014. She gets married to Eric in a Great Expectations themed wedding. Um, <laughs> this sounded so fucking dreamy to me. I looked it up and I was like, I love this wedding. Um, yes, her dad brings a friend, quote unquote friend, a young male model, unexpectedly <laughs> to the wedding. Um, she's really like, Dad, he's not 
we don't have another chair. And he's like, I just need to bring this like young model friend of mine. So he shows up with a, a man named John. Her mom shows up with the man she's dating, also named John, who's her landscaper. Um, and then the one thing she'd asked her dad to do was to bring his Bible because he was officiating the wedding. She's like, bring your Bible. That means so much. And then he forgot it and held an iPad at her wedding. And I think this is just another way he sabotaged her when she would move on without him. Yeah. Um, okay. I so do, after reading this book, it's a sad thing to hope, but I kind of hope she moves away from her parents yeah. emotionally. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> okay, so she's married. She's really happy, but that's also when these surgeries are happening. Um, she has a beautiful quote. We're, we're coming to the end of the book now. She says, um, I wouldn't change a thing about my story because I love who I am and I can forgive who I was, which I think is just such a beautiful thing to look up to. It's also like so... It's such a good way to end the book because she does start off as someone who her parents sheltered her so much that she didn't have a lot of tools and people interpreted that as her being stupid. And she ends the book as someone who unfortunately has gone through a lot of hard things, but is a billionaire. <laughs> it has proven herself to be incredibly smart and incredibly successful. And she's not like, oh, I did that in spite of these things happening to me. It's all one story, which I think is very hopeful for the reader that like, it's not like when you finish going through these hard times that maybe led you to this book, you're going to push them aside and then things are going to be good. It's like, this is part of it. Like, this is part of your journey to, you know, hopefully also becoming a billionaire clothing designer like Jessica Simpson. Like Jessica Simpson, 100%. <laughs> so she also had a line on that page. Uh, that said, quote, can fear walk us into something better, end quote. And that is something similar to that is tattooed in my body. I got this tattoo on my 21st birthday. And my thinking was, I just had so much fear in my life. I was really afraid of everything. And I just didn't want to live like that anymore. So I, you know, I was 21. I had this idea to blackmail myself with a tattoo and sort of put this thing on my body. And then I would see it and be forced to face my fears. And so when I read that in her book, I was like, okay, well, it isn't a Jessica Simpson's book, but uh, it, it does mean a lot to me to push yourself through the fear. And I can honestly say, I don't think of fear as horrible. And part of this, this is so lame, but part of learning this was my improv training and becoming an improviser that like we look at fear and anger as negative, but those are the most useful emotions in telling you to get out of a situation. And like, if you learn to listen to what is actual fear, when you feel actual fear, you should leave. That's your body telling mm -hmm. you to leave, even if intellectually you don't know that. And when you feel anxiety, which is different than fear, oftentimes anxiety means actually lean into this more. Like you're afraid because society told you not to do this thing, or you're anxious because society told you not to do this thing. But if you hang out here a little bit longer, it might be great, but you have to learn the difference between those two things. And when you feel anger, like that's your body telling you, you have been wronged and you're not okay with it. And don't just sit and put up with it. And I think we tell women that those emotions are bad because those are the emotions that get you out of shitty situations. Ashley, that was some Brene Brown on high <laughs> I'm Brene gospel. Black. You are... <laughs> That was incredible. I'm gonna, I'm going to print that and sell it so I can make money. No, I'm well, that's the combo <laughs> of improv training and therapy that has gotten me to this day. <laughs> Let's read the last page. Leaving you now, I feel the way I do seeing my children off to school. I start to sputter all these things to them at the door. Do you have your water bottle? Here, let me straighten your collar. Remember to be kind. 
listen to your teachers, sit with someone lonely, make good choices, and most important, I love you. I'm going to cry just hearing you read it. Sit with someone lonely is so sweet and so not what we are doing right now as, not what doing. <laughs> as yes. a human race. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it was so sweet. And so every episode of this podcast ends with a thank you. Um, and I just want to thank Jessica Simpson for writing this book because, you know, no one expects someone like Jessica Simpson to have this much trauma that they're covering up. And I just really thought it was really revelatory to see that there are people who can be hiding this much trauma. And and it's, it's just so many more people than we think. I want to thank her for spilling every fucking detail under yeah, the sun. Yeah, she doesn't leave the good stuff out like a lot of memoirs do. No, all the good stuff is just like packed full. Um, and I also like want to thank her for being so sweet. And I, I think sometimes she's still struggling and she's still like open about that. And um, I think there's like beauty to be had to being like, I'm struggling and opening yourself up to people and that struggle. Um, and I want to thank her for her lip gloss because it was whipped cream flavored. And I truly oh. believed with it on my mouth, boys would want to kiss me and would be like, mmm, ice cream sundae and come back for more. And it's called positive reinforcement. <laughs> <sighs> thank you. Thank you for them whipped cream products, Jessica. Um, I love this book. I am, I hope that. People will read it. I do think, like you said, memoirs are like self-help books. It's better than any self-help book for a woman who is so accomplished to like let you in on all of this. And I feel like if you're having a hard time and you need a friend, get the audiobook. Jessica truly becomes your friend over the course of listening to this book. And there, I mean, we talked about a lot of the stuff in it, but there was a lot we didn't talk about. There are so many gems in there. I think any woman, any person can get something out of it. I totally agree. I totally agree. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Where can your beloved and adoring fans find you? Everyone listening to this is like, I already follow her. If you're the <laughs> one person who doesn't follow Ashley, where can they find you? Um, on Twitter at Ashley in one C-O-L-E or on Instagram at Ash MB1. I was a late adopter. I didn't get good usernames. And yet it doesn't matter because the people find you. They find <laughs> yeah. you. And she has so many amazing projects coming. There's another season of a Black Lady sketch show on the way. Her incredible movies on the way. There's other secretive stuff that we can't even talk about because it's so secret and sexy that's on the way. And if you go to my Instagram, I'll post pictures that are relevant to our episode. But I'm Ooh. also going to just post pictures of me and Ashley <laughs> because we have <laughs> we a lot have of good, good ones. collection of over the years. We only glow up. And so I wow. don't mind sharing the old ones because we only glow up. Yeah, we really, we had a huge glow up. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> That's all for this week's episode of Celebrity Book Club. Thank you to our production team here at Stitcher, producer Brandon Nix, executive producer Daisy Rosario, with production help from Corinne Wallace. You can listen to ad-free episodes of Celebrity Book Club only on Stitcher Premium. If you'd like a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code BOOKS. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to follow me on Instagram at Chelsea Devantes. If you want to read along with the book recaps, check in, see what's coming next week. You can see photos that I will post from today's episode of our guest, of some of the things we discussed. All that good stuff is on my Instagram. And we also have a Facebook group, Celebrity Book Club Podcast, where we can have greater discussions, get into even more detail. You guys, I am fully out of wine. 
that's a problem. I'm going to go try and drink some water, probably going to just drink more wine, and I'll see you next week.